0: The majority of our lives will be spent chasing happiness, a pursuit which becomes so convoluted that we'll do things that make us miserable, somehow in the name of gratification. All the while, the reality remains that this contentment is so rarely in the places we think to look, yet far closer than we would assume. Much of what captures our attention is expectation. That, perhaps above all else, is what stories are about whether it's horror, or romance, or adventure. When we are consumed by a good story, we become drunk on expectation. Of course, it's the things we don't suspect that surprise us the most, give us the biggest scare, or the most relief. How wonderful would it be if we lived our lives the way we listen to stories or take in films, with expectations of being surprised, with the full cognizance that we'll be tricked lured, disappointed, beaten down, bored, and shocked. I think most of us can relate to the feeling of being haunted by something, haunted by our fear for tomorrow, our anxieties of yesterday. Maybe that's all it takes, our ghosts, to stop us from truly enjoying each moment. But what about your story, the one you're living? Just like any other book, it's bound to be full of surprises, sorrows, tragedies, and joys. There will be death, there will be hauntings, but there will also be beauty and love. And maybe, just maybe, some of these will and must coexist with one another. So why not enjoy it? My name is Harlequin Grimm, and these are the stories of monsters whose voices are lost in history. And this is Mania. Today I present to you the promised collection of ghostly tales. But before we get into it, I have once again decided to relocate the crypt cleaning section to the beginning, as I feel it prudent to share some information regarding the show. This October we saw the release of London, A Carnival of Gallows. It came out quite sooner than I expected. In truth, I thought it would be in November, or December, or even quite later for this episode. But as Astrid and I were sitting on some artistic projects for the month and feeling very little of it coming together, we decided to partner up and try to get that special released. If you've heard of it, if you've heard it here, through iTunes or wherever you listen to it, no doubt you'd notice the difference in audio quality in the introduction. That is because the version of YouTube, that is because the version which YouTube presents is a full, immersive experience with videos that we recorded in London ourselves while we were telling the story. So, If you haven't seen that, that's quite a treat, and I would recommend that you check it out. Moving forward with more video episodes, we have the Stockholm bloodbath, which you can expect at the beginning of November. We're somewhat more excited to bring this one forward, as all of the passages for that story were recorded in Stockholm. For the London episode, we did a technique of layering some narrative over video footage, but for the next special, it's a bit more intimate, with me guiding you through the city streets and important locations. Lastly, some very happy news indeed, is my reaffirming a commitment to doing two episodes a month. When I first started this podcast, I wasn't sure exactly just what this process looked like, how long it would take to craft a story, record it, interact with listeners, or even do the research. Now that we've officially passed the one-year mark, I've come to realize the importance of crafting more stories each month, and I have the experience of that year under my belt. But more importantly, I feel confident that, this time around, I can hold to that promise. So here's to another year of mania. And now, our first story for today, That Which Dwells Below. We are accustomed to thinking of spirits almost like daddy-long-legs or black-widow-spiders, unwelcome guests which creep into our living quarters. Their heads hang from our chandeliers, their eyes boring into us while we sleep. And in our closets, between hangers and clothes, their breath collects in cobwebs and dust. But there are, amongst phantasmic phenomena, a species of spirit which finds itself attached to minds. And because of their fondness for nature, because their spiritual domain is found there, we would call them elves. In a mine known as the Crown of Rose in Anberg, Sweden, the workers were quite familiar with this particular brand of unwelcome guest. They would often see their silhouettes in the billowing dust of shattered stone and coal, and after a night's rest, they would return to their workplaces to find tools disturbed, belongings strewn about but the daylight hours often proved far worse. The elves would sometimes appear clad like miners, running about with great haste like any other worker. But unlike the workers, they had a hollowness about them. Despite their contrived performances, the miners saw these lifelike conjurations, only to feel as if they were staring at moths, light as smoke, flitting here and there, with clothes hanging in the air, like bags being gusted about in a storm. All this while they worked. The elves would make a great fuss about contributing. They sought out the veins of mineral ore, would draw it out and haul it, organize it into various piles. They would appear quite busy, but no matter what form they took, either of strange dwarfs or old wizened miners, nothing ever came of their labors, but were merely mirages played on the vulnerable senses of the miners working in terrible conditions. Since the beginning of this project, The miners did precious little for what haunted them during their working hours. What more could they do but share stories? That was until something of a hysterical outburst occurred between worker and elf. In a daze of dehydration and exhaustion, a miner by the name of George Agricola erupted with rage at one of the elves teasing them all. The air in the mine settled after his uproar. The response was at once bizarre and unsettling. The elves shuffled, squeezed, and retreated back into the walls of the mine, their benign appearances sloughed off, revealing horrific manifestations and masks of death as they slunk back into the rocky walls of the mountain. They left the host of miners alone, briefly. Only a few moments had passed before the miners heard snorting. It echoed through the caverns, not at all dissimilar to the sound of a horse. Through the mouth of the cave, with eyes burning white, a ghostly mare stampeded through the workplace, killing twelve of the miners. Shortly after reports of this incident, the Crown of Rose Mine closed. Another mine called St. Gregory in Sieveberg, a similar ordeal unfolded when a spirit in a black hood arrived one late evening. This apparition took hold of a miner, raised him up high above his fellow workers, and let him fall, injuring him severely. In Sweden, other spirits which guard mines are often a certain kind of nymph. They patrol the mouths of caverns and the depths of forests. They are rather dissimilar to the sorts of demons commonly seen in mines where silver ore, primarily, is located. They labor at breaking rocks overhead, break into unexpected laughter, and tamper with the tools of the workmen, exhausting measures to deceive and trick them into insanity. There are, however, other kinds of demons. Thus brings us to our next tale, The Mad Cook. In ancient Greek... The term genius was not so much an attribute applied to a person, rather, an outside entity currently inhabiting or coexisting with an individual. One such genius, or demon, was called Heidekind. Heide, signifying vast country, and kind, meaning child. He appeared in many forms and sometimes would take no body whatsoever. He was known during the time of this story to give important advice to those in power. There was, in the year 1130, the Benedictine abbot and polymath by the name Johannes Trithmius. He was very active in the German Renaissance, and in one of his published texts, he relates of this precise spirit in the bishop's kitchen. Heidekind was known to help the cooks and do sundry jobs for the household. Like the miners, some cooks struggled with his coexistence. One scullion became so perturbed as to offer insults to the demon. He tormented him for spending his afterlife doing meaningless, hollow tasks. Like the elves, the demon quickly withdrew from the kitchen after this interaction had taken place. Once the familiar had left the presence of the cooks, the scullion warned his head chef. He told him of the unsettling air in the kitchen, and that the familiar stopped arriving to assist them. The head cook laughed this off, making light of the warning. That was until the very next morning, when the head chef arrived to open the kitchen for the day. To his surprise, the door was unlocked, and, through the halls of the bishop's lodgings, there was a most decadent and savory smell coming from the kitchen. It was scarcely half-past five in the morning, so the chef was, as you can imagine, confused. His workers being customarily lazy, a grin came to his face as he realized that somebody had gotten an early start on the day's work. Inside the kitchen, a hearty spit of roast meat was turning slowly over a low fire, and beside it, was another flame simmering a cauldron of stew. There were even several cuts of fresh meat curing in another corner space, meticulously wrapped with twine and herbs. The head cook was not surprised, either, to find the ladle of the cauldron turning of its own accord, or at least appearing to. Of course, it was Heidekind. Again, the cook laughed, remembering how anxious the sculling had been just the day before. Yet here was the familiar already helping prepare several of the bishop's meals for the day. Then, the cook noticed something else. He walked past the familiar. He squinted his eyes as he tried to make sense of it. It was a wrapped package of meat, quite large, about the size of a human head. It was leaking profusely, the familiar sight of animal blood staining the cobblestone of the kitchen's floor. It was about the size of a human head because it was a human head, The chef picked up the package and unwrapped the butcher's paper. Without looking at the familiar, whose eyes he could feel burning into his own skull, he revealed the severed top of the scullion boy. His blood was still lukewarm, freshly flowing now that the cook had upended it. The familiar then manifested in the form of a young adolescent, with sunken, steely eyes and a wry smile. "'I was wondering how you would like me to prepare it,' the demon said." bringing a ladle to the chef's lips. I've already made use of the rest of him. Tell me, what do you think? Thank you for joining me in another episode of Mania. Undoubtedly, you've noticed this episode's contents to be a bit more frivolous, Again, the line of fact and fiction blurs as I take these stories from supposed historic recounts. The dubious and fantastical nature is often obvious to us, people of the 21st century, and yet they seem perfectly lucid facts and details to those of the not so distant past. That brings us to some of the details which were altered. In the first telling of that which dwells below, the miner named George likely never existed. In fact, When the author mentioned George, it was from the standpoint of a colleague recounting the story. I felt that these recollections of nymphs and minds felt too distant, so in a grasp for familiarity, I let the author of the story become a character. As for the terms of the spirits, whether they were called nymphs or geniuses or demons, I kept true to the source I had. The only thing fabricated were the lurid details in The Mad Cook, which were fleshed out from a mere sentence or two from the book which contained the brief recollection. And as always, I must thank the listeners supporting this show. Whether it be by spreading the word of it or supporting it directly, you really have no idea how much it does. If you're like me and your pockets do not necessarily runneth over, really, word of mouth is miracle work for writers. Recommending the show to your friends or leaving a review is a fantastic way to keep the train running. However, If you'd like to contribute a monetary subscription, go to patreon.com forward slash Harlequin Once more, that's patreon.com forward slash Harlequin And there, you'll find subscriber exclusives, the least of which being patron-only updates regarding the show, upcoming episodes, news, etc. Other rewards include self-published literature regarding the philosophy behind this show, a collection of short stories forthcoming, handcrafted letters personally sent to you, and more. Thank you once again from the bottom of my haunted heart. I do sincerely hope you'll join me next time.